Hey, welcome to the online ministry at Coastal Community Church. I want to thank you so much for checking us out, and we're so grateful that these sermons online are benefiting uh, your spiritual growth. Uh, but one of the things we have a deep conviction of at Coastal Community Church is that you're a part of a local church. And so uh, while we want these sermons to supplement your spiritual growth, we also want to encourage you to find a local church. So if you're in our community, we'd love for you to visit us. Check us out. We're on 101 Village Avenue in Yorktown, and uh, we have three service times on Sunday morning that you can see if you can be a part of our community. The service times are 8, 9.30, and 11 o'clock on Sunday mornings, and so we'd love for you to visit us. Um, when you visit us this summer, we're going to be doing a, a new series called One, and uh, we're going to be taking our church body through uh, the letter of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, that Paul writes a letter to the church of Corinth. And the letter is written because Paul is horrified to find out that this church is not unified together as a body um, to make Jesus Christ famous in their community. And I find that interesting because we we live in a culture where I think sometimes we're uh, shocked when a church is working in unity. And so that's what we want to be, a coastal community church. We want to be a church that works in unity uh, so that we can better uplift the gospel message of Jesus Christ. So I hope you'll join us for this new series as we go through 1 Corinthians. The series is called One. You ever had a, a, a looked up at your ceiling in your house? You've got sheetrock and you notice a wet spot or a, a stained spot on your ceiling, right? And when that happens, uh, you know that immediately you, you've got to replace the sheetrock, right? You, gotta, you have to probably cut that out, put a new piece of sheetrock in. You're going to have to spackle and repaint. Uh, but you also know that the, the water stain on the sheetrock really isn't the problem, right? What is that? Well, that's the symptom to the problem, Right, that's the, the, the wet spot lets you know, man, I've got a bigger problem than the stain on the ceiling. I, I've got a leaky pipe. I've got a, a stopped up AC unit. You know, I've got a leaky roof. I mean, the, the, you've got a, a, probably a bigger problem that needs to be dealt with. And so if you just replace the sheetrock, you haven't really dealt with the issue. You're just going to end up with another stain spot in a matter of days or weeks, right? And so you know, man, the, the, the stain on the ceiling is just the simple. Them. And so as we were, as I was processing and studying 1 Corinthians, man, for a couple days as I was preparing this sermon, I was wrestling with, man, where does 1 Corinthians 6 sit with the flow of what the Apostle Paul is doing? Because 1 Corinthians 6 seems to be a series of random teachings or, or exhortations to this local church. And they didn't seem to make any sense until I kind of had this aha moment. I was like, oh, here's what I think Paul is doing. Chapter 5, and so if you missed last week, I really would encourage you to go listen to last week's sermon. Okay, because it's a sermon we don't, on a topic we don't hear preached very much. Chapter 5 was the symptom. Chapter 5 was the wet stain on the ceiling, the stained sheetrock, and Paul immediately deals with the stained sheetrock. But now he says, listen, there's really a bigger issue, actually three bigger issues. And so if you weren't here last week, to summarize, last week was a, was, uh, Paul is dealing with a man in this church who is having sex with his father's wife and celebrating it for the cause of the gospel. Say, hey, I'm free in Christ because I'm now a Christian. I can, I can act immorally and grace sustains me. Grace covers me, if you will. And so Paul deals with that and he teaches us about the idea of church discipline, which we talked about last week. But that's a symptom of a bigger problem. 
And so Paul then deals in chapter 6 with the bigger problem, all right? And so the church, the bigger problem was really threefold. I'm going to give you the full outline and then we're going to unpack it. The problem in the church of Corinth was they had trivialized the church's authority in their lives. This is something the American church never considers, right? That maybe my local church has some authority in my life. Number two, it had trivialized its understanding of the gospel. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? And number three, they had trivialized the danger of sexual sin. Now, by the way, I'm gonna, as I've been making my way through this letter in my private study, one of the things I'm beginning to realize is, is man, Paul over and over and over and over deals with sexual sin. And what's interesting to me is like, you know, here we are 2,000 years removed from this letter, and guess what? We live in a culture that's sexually charged, and I can't think, really, in some ways, this might be the message for the American church. We've got to purify ourselves from sexual sin. It's killing the Christian culture, not even the culture out there, it's killing the Christian culture. It's harming our witness, so I think it applies appropriately to, to, to today. So let's unpack this. Number one, the Corinthian church had trivialized the church's authority in their lives individually. All right, 1 Corinthians 6.1. Paul says, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Okay, so here's what Paul's dealing with. They, apparently, in the church of Corinth, they were bringing lawsuits against fellow Christians. They were bringing lawsuits. It would be, it'd be like you and I going to court and suing one another because of lack of payment or some other thing going on in our individual lives. So this is, this is an overflow from chapter 5 that this church in Corinth doesn't see the local church as an authority or having the ability to properly judge their own lives in wisdom. And so Paul's saying, look, the local church can and should exercise sound judgment in the lives of the church members. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. Paul says, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Verse 3, do you not know that, that we're to judge angels how much more than than matters pertaining to this life. So if you have such a case, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there's not one among you wise enough to settle the disputes between the brothers? Which, by the way, I hope you... This is dripping with sarcasm, okay? Because if you remember chapter 1, what was the accusation that was levied against Paul? You know, he's not, a good, he's not a great communicator of the Word of God. And, you know, the Corinthian people were saying, man, we're wise and Paul is foolish. And so now Paul's kind of turning on his head. like, you, there's no one among you wise enough to, to make a simple judgment between brothers and sisters in Christ, verse 6, but brother goes to law against brother, and they take this essentially before unbelievers. Now, let me, let me unpack this a little bit, okay, and I'll share some of my ignorance with you. We, we've, we've got very bit, little biblical information of what it means that we will judge the world and, and we'll judge angels. We, we know that Jesus Christ will be a part of both judgments, and, and my suspicion is we will somehow join Christ in his judgment upon his return. I, I, but I don't have a lot of information, and so I'm not going to spend a lot of time there, okay? 
Some of y'all love that stuff, and that's great, and you can think about it until the return of Christ, I guess. Um, but, you know, here, here I think is the main point. Paul has a very high view of the church and its ability to give leadership and guidance to Christians. Paul raises the view of the local church. See, we live in this culture where if you're a believer and you're a member of the local church, we never consider maybe the church has some authority over my life. And we looked at that last week. And we looked at it in Matthew 18 where in the area of church discipline, Jesus gives a tremendous amount of authority to the local church. Even in... Even in even in declaring someone potentially to not be a believer in when they're claiming to be a believer. It's, it's tremendous. I would encourage you to read Matthew 18 again. And Paul says, man, why, why do you think the first place you should go when there's a disagreement is the court system or the government? Isn't it possible that the local church, is there not enough wisdom? Is there not some spiritual leaders? And when two brothers, and remember this, this series is based around the idea of unity, right? That the church is one, one body serving together for the good of make, proclaiming the gospel to every tribe, tongue, and nation. And here you are, you're disunifying and you're dragging one another to court. Isn't it at least possible that the local church could give you some wisdom so that you guys could work together for the good of the gospel? We don't consider that anymore. I mean, we're no different than the Corinthian church. I mean, we, we never, rarely in American Christianity, do we consider, man, I, that the local church has some authority. I, I can submit myself to the spiritual leadership of the local church. One of the things I love, I love, love, love when I hear this, and I think, man, this is a person that gets it, is, is when someone comes up to me and says, you know what, Pastor Sean, I, you know, I, may, I got a job opportunity. A job was offered to me in another state, and, and I'm not saying you should, you should never take another job, okay, don't say that. But I love when someone says, I'm, I'm, I'm really praying about it, I'm really unsure, because one of the things that's factoring into my decision is how much I love this church. Man, I love that. And it's not just because... You know, there's something uniquely special about Coastal, even though I think Coastal's a uniquely special church. I do think it's special. It's because of the people involved in the body. But I'm like, but I'm like man, I love that a person is taking into account their ministry inside the body of the local church. And the people that they're, they're serving Christ together with. Like, I think more of us should think like that. That should be a part of my thinking. And I think it's especially true when, I, when there's been a, a group of people that have helped you grow in a particular way. There's a particular sin that you've overcome. I've seen this happen a lot of times where a person has a particular sin that they're struggling with. And the brothers or sisters in Christ have surrounded them. And, and they've walked together in the process of sanctification. And, and I've seen this many times where a person, like a job opportunity comes or an opportunity comes to kind of go to another place in the state or in the country. And they take it. And suddenly that, that network of brothers and sisters of Christ is no longer around them, and so temptation overcomes us. I've seen this so many times. I think, man, you should have thought a little bit more about the importance of your spiritual journey and the power of the brothers and sisters in Christ you've surrounded yourself with in the process of sanctification and growing in Christ. And so there's this, Paul's like correcting this, this, this Corinthian mindset of, man, the, there's great authority in the local church. And Paul says it's important. In fact, he says, wouldn't it be better, rather than drag one another to court, wouldn't it be better to suffer wrong? Wouldn't it be better to be wronged by a brother or sister in Christ for the sake of the testimony of the gospel? 
than to go to court. Verse 7, to have lawsuits with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. And how many times in American culture do we get our feelings hurt in a local church and we're like, man, I'm out of here. I'm going to go find another local body of believers. We do this all the time in American church because there's church on every corner. And so, man, we get upset and we leave. And behind us, we leave a wake of broken relationships. Why? Because we refuse to say, you know what, wouldn't it be better to just suffer wrong for the testimony and the sake of unity and the gospel? We, we never consider that. When we get our feelings right, we never consider, hey, maybe God is teaching me to offer forgiveness. Maybe that's part of this, my spiritual journey. Maybe I need to learn to offer forgiveness in my spirit towards another brother or sister Christ. Maybe I'm supposed to stay and just and be forgiving. You ever pray the Lord's Prayer? It's a dangerous prayer. I caution you. I, I pause almost every time I get to the line that says, forgive us our trespasses as what? Now you just said it, okay? I pause because I'm like, do I really want my sins forgiven at the same level as I grant forgiveness? Whew. Makes me pause. Now I understand that the gospel does, thankfully, by the grace of God, the glory of God, and the goodness of our Heavenly Father through Christ, my sins are forgiven at a greater level than I grant forgiveness. But, man, that makes me pause. Maybe God's trying to teach me forgiveness. Isn't it better, Paul says, to, to suffer wrong? And Paul reminds in Philippians 2 that we're supposed to have the, the same mind as Christ. I'm not going to go through Philippians 2. You can read it on your own later. But the, what is the mindset of Christ? He, gave, he willingly gave up his rights. He, did, he didn't consider equality with God. Even though he's equal with God in the person of the Trinity and the Godhead, he didn't consider equality with God something to be held on to so tight. Yet we do that. Man, my rights. Me. And Paul says, man, wouldn't it be better to suffer wrong? Now, by the way, let me, Paul here is making a general rule, okay? That believers shouldn't be taking one another to court. That we should think about the authority of the local church over our lives. Paul also tells us in Romans 13 that we're to live in submission to the government, okay? So there are times that the demands of the law of the land have us get authorities, local authorities involved. Okay, I'll give you, I could give you one example, I'll give you many, but anytime there's a, an abuse of a minor, all right, the church has a responsibility and authority to submit. So, I, so again, I, we're taking principles here this morning. And the laws of the land de, de, demand that we take that to authorities. I am, I am in no way suggesting that we cover up sin or abuse or in any way that should the church be living in the moral shadows. I'm not suggesting that at any level. What I am suggesting 
that as individuals we should be considering that we submit to our local church. And there are things that could be worked out in the body if we understood submission to spiritual authority inside the local church. So, number one, all right, this church had trivialized the authority of the local church. Number two, this church had trivialized its understanding of the gospel. This church had trivialized the understanding of the gospel, and that's why they were letting, in chapter 5, letting this man run around in habitual sin that even unbelievers knew was sin, right? And so they trivialized their understanding of the gospel, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor Men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Yikes, okay? It's a pretty, pretty inclusive list. Paul here lists for us the general behaviors of unbelievers, all right? And, and, and so he begins to list particular sins that are an overflow of the fact that we're sinners, all right? And so it, things like fornication, which is, if you don't know what that is, it's that sex outside of marriage, all right? The Bible, and we're going to get to this, this is my third point this morning, but we're going to get to this, right? The Bible defines sex as a God-honoring thing inside the confines of marriage between one man and one woman, okay? Outside of that, it's a... It, it, it's sinful, and it's not according to God's design. So sex outside the confines of marriage, false worship or idolatry. Anytime our heart's affections are set on anything other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sex with someone other than your marriage partner. The temptation, acting on the temptation of same-sex attraction where it's man with man or woman with woman is practicing homosexuality. Which, by the way, the New Testament is very clear. And, and I preached on, I, I wish I could think, remember the sermon uh, last fall. I preached on the biblical view of sex and sexuality. I would encourage you to listen to that. I, I went through the whole, you know, where Coastal stands on that, okay. But temptation is not the same as sin. It's pro, the New Testament always says practicing homosexuality is the sin. Stealing or greed. I think greed's an interesting sin. I'm not sure how it's measured, right? At what point do we become greedy? And one of the reasons I stand in front of you frequently, I say, if you're a member of Coastal, I really want you to go on a missions trip. That's a passion of mine. I want, I want you to experience a third world culture just once. Bare minimum, you'll come back and go... I have plenty, right? I have plenty. And, 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 and I, you know, if I was to pick on the two sins of American culture and, and even the American church, it would be the, the, the particular sin of sex and the particular sin of greed. And we, we have a hard time separating wants and needs. We have a real hard time separating wants and needs. Paul lists the sin of abusive talk. That's the word revilers. It's the idea of wounding with words. Have you noticed, one of the things I've noticed I'm getting old is, is how much more sarcastic TV is getting in its humor, right? It's just kind of permeating our culture that sar this kind of this biting humor 
revilers, and it's stealing indirectly as swindlers. It's the, uh, and then Paul's saying these are the habitual and general behaviors of lost people. That, that's why Paul was shocked that the Corinthian church would allow a person who claimed to be a Christian but was living in one of these habitual sinful lifestyles to continue as a member of the church. That's what we talked about last week. Because these in this list are not the general habitual behaviors of believers. When someone claims to be a believer and they continually act in this way... They're either lost, which was last week's sermon, and the church must begin to process with them the idea that, hey, you may not be a believer if you continue down this path. And and the church needs to recognize you're claiming to be a Christian, but you might not be. That's what the purpose of Matthew 18 is. is Meet with that person, meet with that person, meet with that person, try to say, listen, you're not understanding the gospel potentially. While you're claiming to be a Christian, the overflow of your life is showing us quite the opposite. So it's either that or the, you, a person has trivialized their understanding of the gospel. You're loving your sin without considering the high cost of your righteous standing in the presence of a holy God. Like you don't, we don't get to heaven because we are, we're good. Like, God, please don't leave here this morning going, man, Pastor Sean taught us to be good. No, I'm teaching you, you need to rest in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But in that resting and in the completed work of Christ where the righteousness of Christ is granted to us by grace alone, through faith alone, it's the beautiful doctrine of justification. We should never trivialize sin. We need to reflect often on the gospel of Christ, 1 Corinthians 6.11. So Paul lists all these particular sins. He guesses, guess what? Such were some of you. Listen, I know some of your stories. Such were some of you. But man, you've been radically transformed by the gospel. This is one of these little conjunctions in the Bible that has a big, big, big meaning. But... You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Believers do not habitually act lost. They don't habitually walk in sin. A couple highlights here, the word but. That's what you used to be like. But behold, all things are new in Christ. Why? Because you've been washed. The word washed means to be regenerated. It means to be made new. The Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, when you become a Christian, now lives inside of you, and he's stirring in you repentance and belief. So that when you sin, you go, oh, I hate that. And I repent of that. And I believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, the process of the, the idea of being saved or justified, the gospel message to that is repent and believe. The process of growing to be more like Christ is the same message. It's not be good, it's repent and believe. So that when I am confronted as a believer with my sin, the same message that saved me is the same message that grows me to be more like Christ. Oh, I hate that. 
and I repent of my sin, which means I do a 180. Yes, I'm grieved by my sin and I hate it, but I also do a 180. I no longer want to do that. I do a 180 and I'm pursuing righteousness and I believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ to cover me from my shortcomings and give me a fresh start. You've been washed, Paul says. You've been sanctified. That means to be made holy by the Holy Spirit. And sanctification means that we now, because the Holy Spirit lives in us, we now have the opportunity to choose righteousness. We're no longer dead in sins, but we're alive to Christ. And Paul says you've been justified. That means you've been declared righteous. And this goes back to 1 Corinthians 1, 2, and 3, where the Apostle Paul says you're a Christian. You're justified. You're a follower of Christ. Now live up to your name. Give this new name. And the, the Apostle Paul says, man, you've forgotten the high call of this righteousness that has been so freely granted to you. And if you ever wonder what God thinks about sin, just, just think about the bruised, broken, and bloodied body of Jesus Christ. As he, as he takes the wounds upon his back through beating, and he takes nails pierced in his hands. And I would encourage you, if you've never done a little reading on how a person dies from crucifixion. You know, you you don't die in crucifixion from bleeding out. You die from suffocation. It's a slow, grueling, painful death. And as Christ hung on the cross with a bloodied back, Right, and so what they would do is they'd drive a nail through your feet, and you and to catch to to be able to breathe, you would push up, take in breath, and then you would sink down, and you couldn't even let that breath out until you pushed up again. And so the beaten blood back of Christ up and down on the wooden cross, trying to catch his breath and not asphyxiate. That is how much God hates sin. That was the payment for your sin and my sin. And so the next time you're tempted to sin, I want you, and as a believer, I want you to think about the high cost of the payment of that sin. And so when we take the Lord's Supper, which we're going to do corporately in a couple weeks, when we take the Lord's Supper, it's not a small matter. It's not a trivial matter. We, we take that bread and, it, and we're reminded of the broken body of Christ. And we drink that cup and we're reminded of the blood spilled out for us. And so the next time temptation comes, I can reflect on the gospel. And say, man, that's how much God hates what I'm being tempted to do. Because I love Christ. And as an overflow of worship, I'm going to choose righteousness. And for some of you, that means, man, when the temptation comes, you pick up the phone and you call a brother and you say, I'm in a weak moment. And I hate my sin so much, I want you to bear my burden with me. Do that today, some of you. Do do that today. Some of you need to hate your sin so much that you're going to reveal it to another brother in Christ. You're going to, you're going to get some software on your computer that gives an account of the web pages you look at. Some of you need to hate your sin that much. That's what we mean by the context of, of the authority of the local church. You need a brother or sister in Christ to help you overcome that sin because otherwise you're just trivializing the gospel. And you're trivializing the the community of faith that God has surrounded you with. And so Paul says, 
You've trivialized your understanding of the gospel. You used to be that. You're not that anymore. You've been bought with the high price of the blood of God's precious son, Jesus Christ. And finally, Paul encourages this church not to trivialize sexual sin. Okay, so these were the three issues that were facing chapter 5. Okay, this, this, this church had trivialized the authority of the local church. This church had trivialized the gospel. And finally, the overflow of this man's sin in chapter 5 was to trivialize sexual sin. And that's what Paul's dealing with right here in verses 12 to 15. Paul says this. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Verse 13, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for God, and God will destroy both one day. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never, Paul says. Paul is addressing some of the Corinthians' excuses for sexual laxity inside the church. Some of these excuses you're going to recognize, right? These are some common excuses for sexual disobedience. Number one, we're free in Christ. We're free in Christ. The idea that Paul, by the way, this idea of freedom in Christ, Paul is wholeheartedly in approval of. He, He addresses it frequently in his letters. That in Christ, we're now free. But that freedom is not to be used to indulge sin. No, we're, we're, we're and, and by the way, when I, when I, whenever it's not in my notes, I get nervous. Okay, should I say this? Should, thank you, Marty. Marty's going down with me. Okay, so <laughs> y'all kick me out after this. Me and Marty will go start a new church together. I'm just, I'm just kidding. Anytime I've seen ministries and churches that put an overemphasis on the idea of being freedom in Christ, I see in those churches sexual sin creeping in. It's a pattern I've watched through my 20 years of ministry. Okay, so if we never preach the law and we only preach grace, I see those churches oftentimes fall into sexual sin. It's been a pattern I've noticed through the years. Okay, we have to preach both, okay, because both point us to the gospel, all right? It's not one or the other. Now, honestly, I probably tend this way towards the law, so I have to be reminded to pre- be preached the freedom in Christ. But, but gra- okay, but, but freedom in Christ does not lead us to, to, be, to indulge our sinful flesh. Our, our freedom is to pursue righteousness. Your freedom in Christ is to die to yourself. Your freedom is to live generously for others. Your freedom is never to sin. You're a slave to Christ, and this freedom doesn't mean we get to indulge our fleshly natures. Galatians 5.13, the Apostle Paul says this, You are called to freedoms, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the what, church? What does it say? The flesh, right? But, but that through love you should do what? There's two of you awake. All right, here we go, right? 
Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, what? Church, serve one another. That's where your freedom lies. You're now freed up to serve. The freedom in Christ means it's not about you anymore. It's about others. And so Paul says, don't use your freedom to sin, but use your freedom to serve others. The second common excuse for sexual, habitual sexual sin is it's natural to have sex. That's why, what's this whole piece about the stomach is for food and the food, what is all that about, right? It's like this weird phrase in there. Here's what Paul's dealing with. They're throwing out the excuse that the sexual impulse is the same kind of impulse as needing to eat. So, in other words, they're saying, well, if you get hungry, you go eat something, right? So, if you feel the need to indulge your sexual desire, you go have sex with someone. That's what they're, that's the excuse they're hearing. By the way, we hear the same thing today. Now it's being taught in our institutions of higher learning, like it's brilliant, right? This is brilliant. I hit on this in our Genesis series where I talked about, you know, listen, if you've evolved from the apes, which is what's being taught in our institutions, then, then if, just like an animal has a sexual desire, you are an animal. Not a moral being, but an animal. So therefore, just indulge your sexual desires anytime you want. What a stupid argument, right? And here's how I know it's stupid, okay? I'm, I'm gonna, I've been thinking about how I can illustrate this all week, and I, I think I have the illustration, but I'm not sure it's going to come out the way I want it to, okay? So whenever I... <clears throat> Whenever I think about this, and I think about some professor at some, you know, institution of higher learning, some anchor on TV kind of debating this on a philosophical level, and they say, listen, it's just natural to have sex because just like you get hungry, you should eat. Here's what I want to do with that professor or with that news anchor, okay? I want, I want to sit them down, and I want them to say, listen, if they have a significant other in their lives, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a spouse, whatever, I want to sit them down, and I want to say, listen, the next time you're, you, you're, your stomach acts up and you're hungry, right? And you're driving home, you go, no, I'm, I'm really starving. And I want you to come home and I want you to tell your significant other that, you know what, I, I got really hungry on the way home. And so I pulled into Chick-fil-A and I got me a chicken sandwich. What do you think your significant other is going to do at that point? Okay, that's great. I'm, gl- I'm glad you got you some, some Chick-fil-A. I like Chick-fil-A too. You were hungry. You see where I'm going with this? Try the other argument with your significant other, right? So I'm driving home and I wanted to indulge my sexual urges. There's other words for that that I can't use in church, okay? And so, and so I decided to stop by an old boyfriend or girlfriend's house and just indulge my sexual urges. See how that goes over with your significant other. It's different than getting a Chick-fil-A sandwich, Yes. Okay, so let's stop acting like it's no big deal. It clearly is a big deal. Even with unbelievers, it's a big deal. It's it's, it's a borderline ridiculous argument that is running through our culture like it's brilliant. Now, the, 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 the church of Corinth was an extreme city in the area of sexual indulgence. We know that it housed the temple to the goddess Aphrodite and part of their worship ceremony was to shack up with one of the temple prostitutes. There were thousands of temple prostitutes and listen, I get it. We don't have sexual temple prostitutes in our culture but we have the same concepts 
that have permeated our culture through this free sex movement of the 60s that's permeated our culture and now it's permeated our church, our churches, and there is way too much sexual sin in churches. And Paul's Paul's writing to correct this false understanding of sex and sexuality because Paul's clear here there is a unique harm to sexual sin there's a unique harm to sexual sin let's stop fooling ourselves first Corinthians 16 there's some things here that Paul says that I don't fully understand but I get the picture all right verse 16 or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her. For it is written, the two shall become one flesh. That's a quote of Genesis. But he who is joined with the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. Why is sexual sin unique? Because it's the idea of one flesh. And this imagery is given to us in Genesis, and there is a oneness to sex, and sex is a good thing. And by the way, we do worship the Lord when we have sex in the confines, as God has defined it, one man, one woman in the confines of marriage. That is honoring to the Lord, and it is worshipful. But outside of that, it's sinful, and it is a uni- there's a uniqueness to sin. Sexual sin. You know, when I do weddings, you know, we always do this unit. A lot of couples do unity sand. You ever seen unity sand? Two different colors. They take their vows and their first act as a married couple is to do the unity sand. And they take, you know, just take red and green. They each have two different colors and they, they pour them in together. And it becomes a beautiful piece of art they usually take with them. But I often say divorce is like taking that unity sand and dumping it out on the table and trying to separate the various colored grains. It's brutal. Why? Because there's a one flesh thing to sex. And Paul says sex is unique to both body and spirit. And there's a mystery here in verse 18 that I don't understand. But I do understand this. The, pic- the picture Paul is painting is that there is unique damage to sexual sin. And it perverts the purposes of our bodies. And again, sex is not bad, but sex needs to be sex needs to be done inside the confines that God has defined it for, man and woman inside the confines of marriage. Now, Paul here is gracious enough to give us insight into overcoming sexual sin. Verse 18. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. This is the gospel again, ready? For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Here's how we overcome sexual sin. Number one, we flee from it. We run. There's a lot of sins in the Bible. The Bible says stand firm. This one says flee. Young people, if you're single, you're dating someone and you're attracted to that person and you end up in an apartment or a house or a car or you're wherever and you're alone and you're alone and you're alone and you can withstand that temptation over a period of time and not sin, you're better than me. You don't need to be putting yourself in those situations. Mature followers of Christ say, you know what, we want to be in, in a position to honor the Lord. 
So I'm going to have accountability. I'm going to hang out with my parents. I'm going to hang out with my friends. We're going to date in groups so that we can honor the Lord in purity. If If you're married and there's someone at work that's flirting with you, like I get it, like it, it's the like that moment comes where you can send that text that's moderately flirtatious, right? And you send it, and you're hoping for a response. I want you to think about where is this going? It's catastrophic. That's where it's going. Don't hit send to that text. If you're, private, if you're here this morning and you're married and you're private messaging someone, what are you covering up? Why are you private messaging it? You need to come clean this morning. You need to find a brother or sister in Christ to say, you know what, I, I, man, I am, I'm neck deep in it. You need to flee sexual sin. You need to meditate on the gospel. You've been bought with the Christ. And you need to choose. These are your final two. You need to meditate on the gospel. And you need to choose accountability. By the way, this is, this is taught in the confines of church discipline. Chapter 5, chapter 6. Partnered together. So this is where the church comes in and bears one another's burdens. And helps lead, walk with you out of sin. The word disciple, at the end of the word disciple, or in the root word of the word disciple, is the word discipline, right? It's the word discipline. These are some disciplines that are in our lives to grow us to be more like Christ. It's the authority of the local church. Reminding ourselves of the gospel. And fleeing from sexual sin. Now I'm going to tell you something, if you're here this morning and you're neck deep in in a sin and you need some help, let me encourage you, get help today. Get help today. We're actually, we have a class we're offering right now to overcome addiction. So if you have a sexual addiction, we have a class. We can keep it very anonymous. We can keep it very anonymous. If you want to do that today, listen, come up. Put the tear off, put your name and phone number on the tear off and give it to me at the front on your way out. I won't tell anybody. I'll get it where it needs to go. We'll get you hooked up with that class. If you need to confess a sexual sin in order to get out of it, find a brother, trusted brother, sister in Christ. Confess that sin. Get out of it. Wages of sin is what? It's death. We want you on the path of life. We want you to meditate on the gospel. You know, the freedom of the gospel. Paul is challenging his church, man. This is the challenge you're facing. Trivialize sexual sin. I don't want to be that church. I want to be the church that walks in holiness and righteousness. Let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray for this church body. Our culture is not that much different than the Corinthian culture, to be honest with you, Lord. And so you have challenged us with the authority of the local church. You've challenged us to not trivialize the gospel. And you've challenged us to flee sexual sin. Pray that we'd be a people that would do that, God. We would know the freedom of that. We would be a beacon of light. For the one that's in this room this morning, as I'm preaching, as I'm teaching, God, the Holy Spirit's convicting them. And they're like, man, that's me. And I need to know that. I want, I long for that freedom. I've I've gotten to the point where I hate my sin. I want to be free from it. May they find it today. 
May they find it in the prayer chapel. Pastor David back there, may they find it with me at the front. May they find it with a trusted friend. And no freedom from sexual sin. So that the gospel would shine brightly in their lives and through their lives. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you need prayer help this morning, we've got...